Welcome to Paying Attention. This is me, Nicholas Gruen. I'm with my friend Peyton Bowman. Uh, and uh, today we're going to experiment with a conversation which is going to start by me posing a question, why is it that stoicism is turning into a big thing? Uh, Peyton's got some statistics on how much stoicism as a as a craze, as a fad, as a movement, uh, depending on how you look at it, um, grew during the pandemic. Uh, but it was growing quite strongly before that. And my own perspective on this is that uh, I'm, so I'm very unhappy with the ethical... Uh, I'm, I'm unhappy with the resources that my culture has given me for thinking about ethics. And those resources are essentially come from Christianity. They are uh, they're, they're sort of command-driven ideas of ethics, which and, and there are two sort of apex principles. One is utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. The other comes from German philosophy and Immanuel Kant, which talks about the categorical imperative, only do those things which, if you generalise them, you could command everyone to do. And those two ways of thinking, for reasons that I hope will uh, emerge in this discussion, I think are very, um, not very hospitable to little human beings like you and me. Uh, and so when, and, and so one thing that has happened in my case is that I've, when I've, when I become aware of ancient philosophies, they arrive to me as a breath of fresh air. Uh, they seem to be more habitable by humans, but it doesn't lead me to stoicism in particular. I, I'm ashamed to say I can't really tell the difference too much between stoicism and Epicureanism. When I read a bit about that and Aristotle's ethics and even Plato's ethics. I, I can say a little bit about the differences, but the they all are the same thing. From, they all say the same thing to me as a modern because, because the big thing they say that is different to a modern, uh, and excuse the sexist language, these are ancients we're talking about, uh, the happy man is the ethical man. The idea that doing the right thing is the thing that ultimately fulfills you and makes you happy. And the modern idea of ethics is that there's this command. It's a very austere command. It comes from, if not up there, then from a philosophy textbook. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea of ethics, which is a kind of an agony. How good, how much of your own money will you give away? How good can you be? How selfless can you be? How altruistic can you be? And we're going to talk a little bit about that word altruism. So that's what I want to talk about. And uh, I thought one way to get into this would be to ask Peyton to read an essay that I wrote on the virtues and on altruism uh, and to give me his reaction to it. And then we can take the discussion from there. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good summary of um, of things. And uh, I think, you know, maybe we can start by getting back to that, that statistic that you mentioned about stoicism, because I do think it it's important to 
uh, I guess get a sense of the scale of this. So according to an article I found on Vice, uh, during the pandemic, the population, the popularity of Stoicism grew uh, quite a bit. And they said, print sales of meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, that's a, a Roman emperor who was a, a practitioner of Stoicism. Uh, that went up 28. Uh, let, let's, let's dumb it down a little. He's a, so, he's a Stoic <laughs> superstar. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's a Stoic, he's a Stoic influencer. Yeah. But, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot to be said in defense of Marcus Aurelius, but but that that yeah, absolutely no 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 I'm not I'm just being I'm just being silly I'm yeah. not seeking to reflect in any way on Marcus Aurelius other than if if more leaders could be like him I think that'd be great. So then uh, you know if, if you look at the sales of his book anyway they went up 28 percent in uh, the first part of 2020 compared to 2019, print sales of Seneca's letters from a Stoic. Introduced, increased 42% and ebook sales of letters from a Stoic went up 356%. So, you know, one of the things that's driving this interest in Stoicism is that the, it's a philosophy that's been adopted by a lot of people in the tech world. Uh, there have been a few notable proponents uh, of it um, who are kind of influencers online, a man named Ryan Holiday, who's a, a marketing PR, um, strategist who has been very effective at spreading the message. Yeah, it's good. I've watched a few few of his videos. Yeah. Also, Tim Ferriss of the Four Hour Work Week has talked about stoicism. So, I, I think that um, you know. So, but I do think you also have to ask, you know, what what is the appeal of this, and why are people suddenly kind of latching on to this this ancient philosopher? not ancient philosopher, ancient philosophy, uh, which in some ways is at odds with, you know, as you defined, like, as you were talking about kind of Kant and uh, some of the other like Christian ideas about, or Judeo-Christian ideas about obedience to commandments and things like this. So, um, and in your article, uh, you also contrasted it with the idea of altruism in the sense that altruism is a, a kind of opposite of selfishness, right? So the interest in the virtues uh, that you you described your own interest in the virtues as being um, providing a way to look at ethics from a different perspective that was a bit more rich, a bit more full, kind of uh, yeah, had, had a yeah. bit more meat to, well, let me, to latch on to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can I just yes, jump yeah, in please, hopefully please. quickly and say what I what what I hate about? The what I hate about the word altruism. Yeah. I liken altruism to the ether. Now, the ether is this thing that people made up. Uh, I'm not being rude about it to say it was made up because that's what happens in science. You make stuff up. We made up gravity because that seemed to be, it seemed to solve the puzzle of what was attracting each other. We don't know, we still don't know much about what gravity is. And in the 19th century, we invented this this thing called the ether. Why did we invent the ether? Because we thought that light had wave-like properties. And if it had wave-like properties, it meant that light traveled through a medium. So we made up this medium and we called it the ether. So the ether is a concept that is demanded by the way we're thinking. Nobody found the ether and named it. And 
I guess what I'm saying is that people have found the virtues. They can see courage. They can they can um, th th they can see how courage is different to justice. How justice is different to temperance. How temperance is different to prudence, and so on. And what altruism is. It's very often used in biology. And of course, in bio, uh, for instance, we talk about the altruism of an ant vis-a-vis -vis other ants in its colony. And it's not a psychological concept there, uh, but it's a, a statement. It's simply a quality that is attached to an ant doing something which the very crudest idea of evolution and survival of the fittest would suggest that it wouldn't do. Uh, of course, I won't go into why that is. Um, and so it's a sort of a filler concept, and that's fine because it belongs in a scientific context. But what we've then done is turn it into a thing as if there is a psychology to this thing called altruism, as if we could build a life um, trying to be altruistic and I think many people do, and I might even say to some extent I do it myself. But the problem with saying I want to be altruistic is that it gives me no bearings on where I fit into the picture, where other people fit into the picture. Why shouldn't I be so altruistic as to give all of my income away down to the average level of income in the world? I can't answer that question. Um, I should, in some senses, certainly according to that very thin perspective. Um, but it isn't, but, but since almost nobody does that, uh, and they certainly don't do it for a sustained period of time, it's, it's some idea, some intellectual idea crowding out our capacity to reflect on ourselves and to actually become better people. Uh, now, I think I said I was going to start this, I, I think I said at the outset this would be short and I've made it rather long, but I think I've given you a bit of a feel for what I object to about the modern, modern ideas about morality. I'm using the Roman word, the Latin word morality, which hooks up with Christianity, which hooks up with a single God, monotheism, and a, or if you don't want, believe in the God, a single set of commands as opposed to ethics, the Greek idea, which is pagan and is not centred on a singular virtue. It's, it's a much looser, more psychologically um, compelling. It, 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 it paints a picture of an ethical world that I think of as inhabitable by, by little human beings like me. Yeah, I think that that's... Um... You know, there, there's a sense, too, in which I think altruism, to me, it comes across as being very linked to a, a sense of utilitarianism, right? I mean, so if, if I get utility from something and you get the same amount of utility from something, yeah. I can yeah. hand it over to you and then we can yeah. even out the, that I had That's much right. utility and now I have this much and you have this much and we're both That's right. like that. That's right. And again, just to hopefully interrupt more quickly than last time, um, it's from the outside. This, this. Mm. So, so the thing is a thing, and you like a like some money or something like that, and it's separate from us, and it's out there 
thought about conceptually by morality or ethics. Um, and it's not really about the fabric of our lives and how people interact. Mm. It's much friendlier for, uh, for algebra and formal analysis and publication in academic journals than it is for the way human beings interact with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And so for me, though, the thing that's interesting about this re, you know, resurgence of Stoicism is that it doesn't really break, in my view, break out of this model uh, that you described. So, and you, you talked a little bit about how, uh, by, by model which you describe, I feel that, you know, the Stoicism, and the Vice article actually goes into this quite a bit too, but the Stoicism that we're seeing sort of in this revival is maybe, um, you know, it's challenging to call it, you know, Stoicism for a couple of reasons. One is <clears throat> the original concept of Stoicism is not as clearly an articulated philosophy as I think people want, to, or not necessarily people want to believe, but people might think. So, um, you know, Stoicism was founded in, in Greece, um, but really the Stoicism that we're most familiar with was a form of Stoicism that was written about by Roman writers, especially, you know, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, who were living, you know, uh, you know much later than the Stoicism when it was originally, came, you know, invented or came about. And their, their writing is, I think, in conversation, you know, with each other. And I think it, there, is a, there are contrasts being um, created between Stoicism and competing philosophies. Uh, you named Epicureanism. But it's not, like a, it's not as clearly defined a philosophy as, say, Platonism or Aristotelianism or, you know, where, where we really have canonical books that really outline to some degree, more, more, some more than others, but you know, if you think about the, mm. the Platonic That's idea of the forms, you can look at something like, um, you know, the Republic that really sort of lays it all out, or something like this. And just the, an Aristotelianism, like this idea of virtue, uh, you can read about in, in the politics, for example, or the Nicomachean Ethics. <clears throat> so, they just uh, there's not that central text in a way. I mean, the closest thing is you have have is probably Seneca's letters from a Stoic, but, you know, it's a collection of, of letters. So, um, so then you have this, uh, you have this basic philosophy, which in its original form, it doesn't have quite as much clarity as it's thought to have. And then you have the modern interpretation of the form, which in some ways, uh, you know, if you look at the way yoga is practiced in California, and this is not a knock on the way yoga is practiced in California, but it's not the same as it, as it was where it was originally sort of formulated in India, for example, in that, that religious and cultural context in which um, yoga is being practiced is really different. And it's, it's really shaped the way in which yoga is taught and thought about, I think, especially, you know, all over North America and in other parts of the Western world. So, um, so I think that uh, we see a similar situation with Stoicism where certain aspects of Stoicism have been very, you know, eagerly uh, kind of latched onto, but other parts, for example, the, there's a sense that, um, you know, the Stoic view of the universe is uh, pantheistic, uh, that, um, you know, there's a whole kind of metaphysics that goes along with it. And I don't think that that's nearly as emphasized in the modern version of 
So, so can you say more about the metaphysics that goes along, along uh, with it? You know, definitely I'm not like a, you know, so I, I guess my my best understanding of it, and I'm not really a, a stoic per se, is that, well, the universe, first of all, is pantheistic. So it's not that there mm -hmm. are many gods, but that the universe itself, everything in the universe is kind of a god or, or something like this. And, you know, um, so that's, that's certainly a, a contrast with the way a lot of people think about God in the contemporary world, though there are uh, there are pantheists around. That's not, um, but second of all is that there's this sense in which you have this overriding, I guess logos, and you know this is a word. These are words that are hard to translate into modern yep. language, and logos is also used in the Bible to talk about the, this kind of the word of God, but it's it's different. It's used differently in Stoicism. And um, so, so is Logos, um, it, it, when John at the opening of John's gospel says, in the beginning was the word, yeah. that's Logos. Yeah, uh, that, that's right. The yeah. Greek word is in the beginning, there was Logos. That's yeah. right. And there's a sense in which they're related and those, they're in conversation with each other with these different philosophies. So, but the, the meaning is pretty different. It kind of describes the natural yeah. order and nat natural logic to the universe. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the goal is to really understand that and to align yourself with it in this yes. ancient text. And I, I do think that that's present to some degree in the modern version of Stoic Stoicism. But I think in our, and we talked, I think we were talking about this before and you used a very good term, which is that it's very, was ends agnostic. Um, which I thought was a very good way of putting it, that mm. there's a sense in which, especially in the modern practice of Stoicism, uh, you you want to cultivate this kind of sense of calm, acceptance, um, engagement with the world that's kind of constant and it's not really affected by your circumstances, which to some degree draws on the, the ancient source material. But at the same time, um, I, I find that to be very, very much in keeping with uh, our modern environment where, you know, in a, if you work, for example, in an organization, <clears throat> you will, you're expected, you know, whether you're working on, uh, let's say, increasing marketing outcome by 10% or you're, you're building a, a rocket that you're going to put, you know, people on Mars or something like this, you're sort of expected to engage with your work with the same degree of, you know, energy, uh, focus, attention. And it seems to me that, that, uh, and you said earlier, calm, calm. Yeah. I think calm. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that the, the stoicism that we're hearing about these days is very, very much aligned with that idea. And I don't, you know, I don't know how, uh, I feel that that's a very modern way of looking at things. I mean, certainly there are ancient approaches that emphasize, let's say, the right over the good. But, but I think that the the ancient concept of let's say virtue in particular has more of an idea of certain goods, uh, internal goods, or you know other goods that are are really important to um, think about as you go about a process. So. Um, and in that sense, it also is sort of compatible with ideas of utilitarianism and uh, this modern version of, of uh, Stoicism. Yeah. You know, um, it's compatible with utilitarianism and this idea of altruism. And um, 
you know, and I think also that that aspect of Stoicism, being able to borrow that from the ancient world, is also what has made this the winner. Because you asked, you know, why not Epicureanism or something like this? Yeah. Because yeah, or Platonism. You know, or Platonism. Well, and I think yeah. Platonism. There's a big difference, but Epicureanism is a lot like, as you noted, is a lot closer to Stoicism. But I think the yeah. main difference is that with Epicureanism, and again, I think Epicureanism. Well, well, maybe we should, and maybe we should just pause and say that uh, there is a popular notion of Epicureanism, yeah. which is to have a, which is hedonism, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you read, but but then this is what I was saying when I encounter these ancients. They they basically sound very similar to me. From my, yeah. you know, all ancients look the same. You know, I could be accused of racism if they were <laughs> if it was another if it was another uh, continent uh, in the in the in the modern world, but it's not. But from for my eyes, I read Epicureanism and I hear that you know there were great debates between Epicureans Epicureans and Stoics. And I just think, oh well, they basically seem to agree on most things. Uh, so you might want to say a little more about what you know, which, however much it is, is more than I know, uh, about the difference between those two things. And then I wouldn't mind uh, talking to you a bit more, mainly with you talking, I suspect, about Platonism. But do you want to say something about um, Epicureanism and the difference between it and Stoicism? Yeah, so I think Epicureanism is a hedonistic philosophy in the sense that it it regards pleasure as being uh, the in a way the ultimate good, um, but um, it's not hedonism as we understand it in the sense that you're not you're not really trying to maximize how much pleasure you have. In some ways, you're trying to enjoy pleasure in moderation, and you're also trying to avoid yeah. suffering. Um, so, yes. so in that sense, yeah. there, there again, there's a, yeah. there's an interesting contrast or like a parallel with the debates around utilitarianism, especially. You know, someone like Peter Singer, who argues that the, the goal of uh, utilitarianism really should be to reduce the amount of suffering, not increase the amount of utility, something like this. Uh, but that led, you know, the Epicureans, for example, to disengage with a lot of worldly activities. For example, um, politics, you know, uh, someone would, you know, there, there might be certain political activities which would be okay as an Epicurean, but probably you wouldn't want to serve in you know, something like U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, because there's just a lot of unpleasant like, fighting you have to do, and you have to yeah. to engage in a lot of activities. With yeah, but it's okay. So, so, so at least to put in my or just to explain why I encounter this as so similar to Stoicism, because the way you're describing it is very different, is that both of them. If you like to pick up a word, I think we mentioned earlier the difference between thin and thick. Um, they both they both propose that uh, it, it, uh, Epicureanism says pleasure is some ultimate good, but you can't just get it by going and buying a yacht. Yeah. Um, it, that 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 uh, this is a long term siege of pleasure that you make, and these pleasures are not um, uh, are not yeah are not sort of what modern people would think of as particularly hedonistic yeah. pleasures. They're, they're the acquired tastes of learning to enjoy life. But it's also but, but it's not an immoral or an amoral philosophy. It also, uh, I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, 
also preaches a quite strong moral code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so for example, and I guess I guess the idea is that if you don't adhere to a strong moral code, you're not your life is not going to end in the enjoyment of increasing pleasures yeah. until they stick you in the box. Yeah, and I, I think that you know, that for example, a good a good example of this is one of the important pleasures you're supposed to enjoy as an Epicurean is something like friendship. You know? and I don't think yeah. friendship really fits the model of, let's say, utilitarian, uh, you know, model of an economy. Um, so, yeah. and also another thing is, another reason why Epicureanism is not, I think, quite as easy to grasp is there's a lot less source material surviving for it. Um, we have more, we have better, let's say, books surviving for Stoicism. Yeah. And, you know, it also had, has its own metaphysics uh, and things that don't, aren't, aren't super compatible with modern, um, modern ways of thinking about the universe. So, uh, so I think that that's, that's an, an interesting contrast. I think that when you get to something like um, Aristotelianism, which is what I really think about when I think about the concept of virtue, um, and then you know, Platonism has its own sense of uh, has its own kind of disconnect from from what we think about as let's say happiness or, or good uh, you know pleasure. But uh, I think that in a way, Aristotelianism is more actionable in a sense that you can. Um, and I think in in relation to your article about uh, kind of cultivating virtue, because it's it's. You know, first of all, the argument is that by being a good person, as you say, you you have you have a happy life, and uh, this happiness is is generated in a way by by fulfilling a certain role in society or being in a certain you know acting in a way in a community that's um, you know fitting to the role uh, that you're in. I, I might be well, and also with one's and also with one's friends. Yeah. And so then, yeah. then he breaks it down into these virtues that that you named. Uh, that, you know, for example, courage, bravery, and uh, you know, and in each one of these, there is always a. There's two extremes. You can either have like too little courage and too much courage, and those become vicious. Those become uh, really negative. So if you're not brave enough, obviously that's bad. You're a coward. And almost every society on earth dislikes a coward. I mean, it's, it's the one vice that almost everyone agrees upon. But on the other hand, if you're, if you're sort of too courageous, you can become reckless and cause all kinds of problems that, that not only make your life harder, but the life, lives harder of people around you. Uh, I'll, I'll just interrupt there to provide a big contrast with our discussion last week about Vladimir and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, I, I know of a Ukrainian person who, and and someone said to them, you know, isn't it wonderful what Zelensky's done? And um, she said, well, he's a comedian. He's got us into a war and she's not very impressed. Yeah. So Zelensky's clearly very courageous. Uh, and the question is, is he reckless? Um, I'm not trying to answer that question and I'm not trying to... <laughs> I'm only trying to say that these things are very, you know, that these things are beyond our comprehension. But uh, it's a nice illustration of, of a 
it's a nice illustration of the possibility of having too much courage. But well, this, of the vice this, of the vice of having too much courage. But but this is kind of a this is an interesting point because it, it does perhaps you know give us a sense of where the limitation of this virtue ethics might be. So we talked a lot in that episode about uh, Churchill, and you know, yeah, I, I think Zelensky is a little bit you know it's it's very. It's very soon to really pass judgment on him, but I think most people yeah, yeah. argue that uh, Churchill uh, was courageous. And you were talking about how that, how he was happy in a way when we were last week. Yeah. We talked about yeah, the absolutely sublime. He kept telling people we are in sublime times. Yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> bombs raining down. So there's a sense in which that that courage, in a way, benefited uh, Churchill, and we. Yeah. Now look back yeah. on that as having benefited yes, yeah. because yeah. he, you know, he helped us, you know, fight Nazism and, and save Western Europe and some other, other aspects and helped us ultimately defeat, you know, Nazi Germany. But, but at the same time, uh, you know, his internal, let's say, feeling about that conflict, he, he probably, in, in the sense that he is, he is, let's say, carrying out that, uh, like, kind of enacting that virtue. There was a certain, let's say, happiness, as Aristotle would have called it, from from performing that role well. And in a, in the same way, maybe Zelensky is kind of in that perfect mean for himself. You know, he's he's not obviously not afraid, and in his view, I don't think I don't know who knows what he's thinking, but I, I think you could at least see it that he's not over over. Uh, let's say courageous, you know, who knows what, what we will judge, you know, how we will judge the situation in years come, to come. But, um, but I, yeah, well, we don't know. We don't know. Happiness. Yeah. And, you know, there's a sense too, in which that recklessness might be hard to define where, you know, someone who is brave and runs into battle and then gets, you know, killed, um, maybe acting with perfect courage and their yeah. activity might not be reckless. And then at what point does, well, he, yeah. if he didn't need to, need to do that, um, you know, the battle was already over or something happened or he took a risk that didn't make any sense, then, then yeah, obviously this was not a good outcome and, and so forth. So it, it can be a little bit hard to define, especially yeah, ex absolutely. externally, as you, as you pointed, where, where that idea of courage is, right? And where it becomes a vice, um, on, especially in the excessive, you know, acquisition of or use of a, a virtue. And uh, I, I think that's also in a way an interesting counterpoint to modern ideas about, I'd say within that utilitarian system where we have this idea of altruism is this sense of uh, meritocracy. And if you're in a meritocracy, there's really no sense in which you can have too much merit, you know? So maybe yes. Yes. in like an organization, you're not going to be punished for being too efficient, for example. I mean, unless yeah. you're just really bad. Unless you, yeah, well, there are people within bureaucracies who've been punished for being too efficient, but I know exactly what you mean. And that's actually something that Alistair McIntyre points out that, that uh, well, and Alistair McIntyre in a book, yeah, this one, um, which I bought and read a couple of years ago, and this, these, this, this follows the transition of um, modern ethics, modern polity from 
this Aristotelian world of balance to these three things, power, pleasure and profit, that you're trying to maximise. And the constraints upon you are external constraints and typically other people trying to get these things as well. So you end up in this, this clockwork world a bit like Newton's celestial mechanics um, where... Uh, you're just a, a bit, you know, you're you're a particle, uh, you're subject to forces and your job is to do the very best you can for yourself uh, and possibly for more than yourself if you take on the prime ministership, for yeah. instance. But it's a very different, it's a very different, yeah, it's a, it's a maximising focus. Yeah. Um, and that, in fact, might be, uh, uh, we don't have to end here, maybe we should, but that's not a bad place to to put a marker down uh, before we talk about this other idea where I used uh, the modern the, the mod, modern Aristotelian philosopher Alistair McIntyre to try and say some important things about our economic institutions and how this drive to optimize this this competition between different agents to optimize actually actively undermines the virtues. Yeah, I think that it, that is uh, its own kind of topic. And I think that's an mm. interesting one. I mean, maybe that is a, is a good one for another. Yeah, and I agree. I think we can, we could sort of, I think, you know, we could wrap up this discussion maybe by talking about, you know, your own sense of how, this idea of altruism or, or modern uh, morality is thin. And then, you know, if we take seriously the proposition that stoicism, modern stoicism has been in a way subsumed into this, um, this model, you know, in this, it sort of works well because it has something in common with something, for example, like getting things done where you're, you're supposed to um, just, yeah, do tasks and have this mind like water, as uh, David Allen, the, the right, the author of this, puts it. Um, so, so, do you think that um, if if we take this idea seriously, like then what what is you know what are people really reaching for in your mind when mm. they think about stories? Mm. When they think mm. about, I mean. Um, why not just, you know, follow some sort of management philosophy or like you, you have, for example, Stephen Covey's idea of the seven habits or something like this. Why are people reaching for this uh, older hmm. philosophy? I, I don't know. I, 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 they, they feel a lack. I'm sure of that. Um, perhaps there's this idea of optimizing, which is upsetting people. I think you're insight you didn't you haven't used it in our discussion but you did a little earlier when you talked about it's an odd word to use for stoicism but it it has a it, it has a it fits well with bureaucracy which is sort of what you've been yeah. saying um so it's a contained philosophy it's about you in your cubicle your relationship with other people um and it's a very it's a it's a um I don't know. It's 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 got a, a warm sense of um, of of that one's balanced obligations to oneself and to others. 
about it. And those are things that people feel very much lacking in their lives. Uh, but it does fit into, you know, it'll work for a salesperson. It'll work for a, a someone in accounts. Uh, it'll work for somebody, you know, working for a, as a staffer for a politician. Um, so I think that those, th this idea that it fits the modern sense of the independence of ends and means that you can be given your ends by someone else and you will, you are the means and you will do the best you can with that. And you will try to live an ethical, uh, calm and, uh, and endurable life, uh, hopefully a pleasant life, um, in that context. Um, I guess, I mean, one place that I think might be a bit of a tease and I'm not, going to tell you that I have worked this out for myself. But the article that I wrote about virtue, um, and it said, it, the title is something like altruism comes from from a model, uh, virtue comes, it, it comes from life. One of, one of the things I had in my mind was effective altruism. And effective altruism is quite a nice foil to stoicism. Mm -hmm. And, but effective altruism has this very modern separation of the person and the task. So effective altruism conceives of ethics, conceives of doing the right thing in turn, in uh, and now I'm sure people can disagree, but certainly early on it's, it's sort of very much in terms of very strict consequentialism. It's really about the consequences of what you do that is separable from who you are, from your being. Uh, and I think many of the things that effective altruism has done are quite magnificent, actually. So I was, <laughs> at the same time, there's something that, that, that bugs me about it. And I, was, I won't say who it was, I don't know, just because this is recorded, I don't think you'd mind, but I was talking to one of the architects of uh, effective altruism. Uh, you can hear him on a podcast near you. And, and I said to him, um, if you were going into a primary school, what would you tell them about effective altruism? Now, my thinking behind that question is that ethics is a very human thing. And you may not be able to tell a primary school person everything that's in your mind, but you know, Christianity, every religion has a pathway. Um, and he said to me, well, I think it'd be irresponsible to tell primary school children that these kinds of things because they can't understand them. And so what bugs me about effective altruism, what, what I find it doesn't deal with, which I think is completely central and perhaps why people are taking to stoicism, I think in larger numbers than effective altruism, is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't, um, it doesn't focus on, the, on myself and the world as if we're kind of equal partners. That's roughly my, that's roughly my idea. I have an obligation to be ethical and I have an obligation to myself I'm, you know, I'm around for a little longer and I want to try and have a decent life. There will be times when I'm, it might be entirely appropriate for me to completely sacrifice that for a child, for 
a school hall for something or other. But generally speaking, the idea of an ethics that makes you just one person in seven billion on the planet, that's exactly what I am. But from my point of view, there's me, I'm 50% of the world, and there's all them who's 50% of the world. And of course, I know that they look upon me in the same way, and I certainly don't want them to look upon it any differently. And I think that if you don't do that, the ethical landscape that you've sketched out in your own head is really uninhabitable. It's, it, you can pretend, you can write essays about it, you can get learned journal articles about it, but it's not really, and, and you can pretend, yeah, you can pretend to yourself as well, but it's so austere that it is uninhabitable and it doesn't help you. And to get back to this idea of the virtues, one of the attractions of the virtues is that almost everyone wants to think of themselves as having to some degree these virtues. We want to be courageous. We want to be just. We spend half of our goddamn time pretending that we are, rationalizing that we are, and so on. That shows how much we want. And so that to me is building the ethics of a community from the right place, which is the psychology of the individuals within it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, speaking of that, I do think that, you know, and I, I wanna say this uh, because I, I feel like I've, I don't think I've, let's say trashed modern stoicism, but I, I do think that there, there is, speaking to that psychological aspect, you know, I do think that there is something in a way heroic about it in the sense of this pursuit yeah. of tranquility uh, is not yeah. just like, well, the, you know, the Latin term I think was tranquilitas. You're, it's it's not just being like calm. There, There's a sense in which you're really tapping into something uh, a kind of higher level. And I think that's also yeah. for a yeah. lot of these mindfulness, uh, you know, mindfulness meditation and mindfulness is, is very popular now too for I think a very similar reason. I don't, yep. it's just about kind of relaxing, you know, there's something more to it for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I think that, that that's a fair thing to say in its defense. Um, but yeah, speaking of the primary school kids, uh, and I wonder if this might be getting a little bit off topic before we wrap up, but I, I do think that there's something very, you know, in dealing with children, I, I think that, and I, I definitely come from more of a platonic perspective, let's say, and I do think there's something mm. in which children in particular, they, they construct their morality through a process of a kind of mimesis or like even almost a kind of, you know, Plato might have even called this kind of, there's a sort of memory that's going on through this process. Yeah. We could talk about maybe another time, but, you know, it's like my daughter can, can read a story like, She's, she's how old? She's, you know, she's five years old. So I read her story yeah. like David and Goliath. And David and Goliath is so easy to understand if you're a child. Yeah. You know? And it's yeah. not, it's not yeah. just that the small guy can beat the big guy. It's like there's this sense in which all the factors of hero, heroism and justice and, you know, obedience and all these things can come into play and be be like just, just so easy to grasp. And whereas if you yeah. try to break this down and being like, well, Goliath was trying to serve his country and put his other people first, and you know, you know, tried or not Goliath, but or David, but also Goliath to some degree. Yeah, I mean, you, well, to some degree, you Goliath. If you yeah. try to argue that position, you could, you, if you make it too abstract, you can be like, well, Goliath was yeah. trying to, you know, trying to protect his people by being the sole champion that was going to fight and yeah. start a yeah. conflict. 
but you know that's not how the story goes and that's not how kids understand it and uh, i think it's yeah it's yeah. really interesting how you know certain stories like that kids can really see the world in that through that uh, way and learn yeah that. and so Yes, and when Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics, was trying to fit the world together 17 years before he published The Wealth of Nations about economics, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And that's about how our sentiments, and particularly our sympathy, the sympathy we have for one another, how they are the building blocks of our human world, yeah. far more than our capacity to calculate anything. Yeah. And uh, so that's my... I agree with that, and that's what I think, um, you know, maybe this isn't a bad, uh, there's just an assertion of mine, maybe not a bad yeah. point to end on, that we are beings of sentiment, mm. um, uh, and um, and we, and reason, it's a lot of modern neuroscience says the same thing, that we can't make decisions um, without our emotions. Uh, and so we are, um, we are creatures who, whose ethical relation to each other is founded in sentiment, our sentiment towards each other, our sentiment that there but for the grace of God go I. And um, that seems to me to be... Um, completely fundamental to ethics and something which I feel robbed of if I look at the two main candidates outside of virtue ethics, which is utilitarianism and um, Kantian duty-based ethics, which for reasons that completely escape me is called deontological <laughs> ethics. I mean, Christ. Uh, anyway, with that, uh, you may want to say something more. No, I think that's very well said, and I think we, this yeah. is a great point to conclude on. Good. All right. Well, thank you for another very, very enjoyable chat. Uh, thank you. My, uh, my tea, I've consumed quite a bit more tea. <laughs> See you next time.